Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest was born in Zurich, Switzerland. He studied economics at the University of Zurich, and at the age of 24, obtained his PhD in economics, magna cum laude. In 1990, he set up his business, publishing a widely read monthly investment newsletter, The Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report, which highlights unusual investment opportunities. He is also the author of several books, including Tomorrow's Gold, Asia's Age of Discovery. Please welcome to the show, Mark Faber, editor and publisher of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. Mark, welcome. I'm very happy to have you here. Why don't you take a minute and kind of walk people through your backstory a little bit? I know we touched on it on the introduction, but you're in Thailand. I'd like to hear a little bit about your life. Well, I studied in Switzerland and then in London and economics. And when I finished, that was in 69. I was looking for a job and then I took a job with a Wall Street firm called Whitewell. It was an investment bank broker. And then I went uh, in 1970 to the US and started working for them. And then in 73, they asked me to go to Hong Kong to build up their Asian business, which I did. And in 78, White World was merged into Merrill Lynch in the US. And I didn't want to work for Merrill Lynch. And I don't think that Merrill Lynch was very keen to have me work for them anyway. So I looked for another job. And then I opened the offices for Drexel Burnham Lambert. It was a Wall Street firm that specialized in high yield bonds, junk bonds <laughs> on the Mike Milken. And I opened the offices in Hong Kong and in Singapore. And I ran the business until Drexel went out of business in 1990. And then I started my own business, Mark Faber Limited in Hong Kong. And I still have the business. I still have an office there. But after 2000, I decided I wanted to go and live in Thailand because I had land in Thailand and my wife is Thai and I wanted to have a lifestyle. When I was traveling a lot, that uh, would allow me, when I'm at home, to have more space because I have a large book collection and I have a large collection of communist memorabilia. And I wanted to have dogs and trees and so forth and so on. So now I live for more than 20 years in Thailand. 
So this is basically my background. Originally, I'm from Switzerland, and uh, I've been in the financial business all my life. It's not that I understand it any more than when I started. <laughs> That's my business. Okay. Well, when we were looking to leave the UAE, we were looking at Hong Kong and moving over there. But the space, as you had said, was just not nearly enough. I needed somewhere that I would actually be able to build a life and spread out a little bit. Now, do you have a lot of your investments? Are you really focused on the Asian markets still? Or are you having more of a global perspective these days? I have a global perspective, but since I live in Asia, I have more knowledge about the Asian markets and the investment scene than I would have, say, about Brazil or the Russian market or the Middle Eastern markets. I have some investments in Europe and some in Canada, but mostly the portfolio is in Asian securities, Asian stocks. Well, we've seen the Asian stock market and a lot of the things in Hong Kong looking very, very cheap these days. They've really been beaten up. What's your opinions about some of the companies over there these days? Well, every year I'm asked for some recommendations about uh, stocks. And this year I said that the most hated market, and as I said, I had an office in Hong Kong since 1973. And I lived until 2000 in Hong Kong, but I still uh, go back to Hong Kong from time to time. But I've never seen the mood and internationally, the mood by international investors as negative about China and Hong Kong as it is now. And you can buy in Hong Kong property companies. In Hong Kong, there are five or six major property companies. They are owned majority by a family. So the families are relatively cautious with their money. They have low leverage. So a major property company in Hong Kong would have a leverage of maybe 20% maximum. So they're relatively safe and they all sell at a 50% discount to the asset value. Now you may say, well, the property market in Hong Kong will go down. Yeah, it's probable that it will go down further. It has already eased a lot, but it will probably go down further. But even if it goes down, say, another 20%, if you buy assets at a discount of 50% and sometimes 60%, it's still, in my opinion, a reasonable bargain. And you have a dividend yield on many of these shares of, say, 6%. Last year, I recommended the company. It was Jardine Strategic. It was also is listed. It was listed in Singapore. Was selling at a fifty percent discount to a net asset value, and then the family is a Scottish family. They took it private, and they still have two listed arms of the company. One is called Jardine Cycle. They own the largest car assembly plant in Indonesia. They have an investment in that company. And they also own an investment in the second largest cement company in Thailand. So selling at a 50% discount to net asset value. So I see in Asia actually quite a lot of shares that are not as cheap as they were in 2009, but they're reasonable value. Let's put it this way, reasonable value. 
one worry is, of course, that there is a war between the US and China. And then obviously it would have negative implications on the valuations of Asian stocks. I don't believe a war will break out anytime soon. But it, a lot of people believe that. That's why they're so negative about Asia. And that's why they're so negative about Hong Kong. Well, my wife is from mainland China, and I've had a keen eye on these markets for a very, very long time. And I'm also looking a lot at these Hong Kong companies and a lot of the things like you mentioned, cement companies, oil companies, coal companies, everything like this between Hong Kong and mainland China. And I'm looking at the PE ratios and things are 3, 3.5, 3.8, something like this. And dividends are very high single digits or very low two digits. And I'm going, if we get this right, this seems like an amazing opportunity to be purchasing things for longer hold positions in my portfolio that could really stretch out and really pay for themselves quickly. My main concern, though, is it just pessimism about Asia in general at the moment? Or do you think that this is quite risky that we might have sanctions coming if China does cross the Taiwan Strait and invade Taiwan? Do you think that it's there's going to be sanctions on all of the Hong Kong companies as well, or just mainland China? Any insights from that side? Well, there are already a lot of sanctions on mainland companies, some of which are listed in Hong Kong, say China Mobile or Sinopec or CNOOC. So the sanctions are already there on numerous companies. As I said, I don't believe the Chinese will invade Taiwan, but there is one case where conflict would be inevitable and that is the case where the U.S. would build military bases in Taiwan and station, you know, like American troops in Taiwan. So the Taiwanese people recently had local elections and it was a massive win for the KMT. Uh, this is the party of Chiang Kai-shek who fled to Taiwan and his grandson became now the mayor of Taipei, which is the largest city. Now, the KMT, they don't want any war with China. In fact, they want reunification, but the terms haven't been determined. But I'm just saying, the Taiwanese people don't want any conflict. That's why they voted the KMT in. So I'm hopeful that the tensions can be resolved. But the problem is the U.S., they like to provoke things and lead to conflicts and so forth and so on. So I don't know, but let's put it this way. A conflict would be bad for all financial markets in the world. Well, I've been watching the arms manufacturers and the amount of money that the U.S. is pledging to different countries. So if we take Ukraine out of the mix right now, the largest recipient of U.S. aid in military aid is Israel. And right behind that is now Taiwan. They've pledged billions of dollars to go over to Taiwan every year. And it will all be coming direct from Raytheon, direct from Huntington Eagle and all of these types of defense companies. So they're gearing up for something over there. I'm telling you, the Chinese will not attack as long as the sovereignty of China over Taiwan is not abused or as long as it's not threatened. 
But if the U.S. provokes China to a limit where the Chinese have to move, then the danger is significant. But I can assure you, nobody in Ukraine, nobody in the world who is an ordinary person wants war and wants to go with war. But the people sitting in armchairs, in defense companies and politicians who've never been in a war ever, or even generals who have never been in action, they are all thinking, oh, this is great, because a lot of money flows through the war effort. A lot of money. Well, I know with Ukraine, they didn't want them to be joining for NATO because they were saying the country was too corrupt. Now, there's 60, they've already pledged $67 billion in 2022, and it could double in 2023. And no one seems to care anymore about the corruption over there. So it's like, what is happening with all of this money that's going over, all these arms? It's a lot of it is corruption that flows back into the U.S., we have so many examples of money flowing straight back into the pockets of politicians in the U.S. and of American companies. It's a sad story, but this is the way it is. And the media is, of course, very anti-China and pro-Taiwan, and they blame the Chinese for everything. They blame Qatar for everything. They blame Russia for everything. You know, it's a whole propaganda machine. And we have to be objective and kind of navigate the whole thing and try to minimize our losses. The markets will move also for other reasons. But for me, the principal risk in Asia is conflict US-China. This is a big risk. Absolutely. And right now, are you seeing these as opportunities or are you seeing these as just ways to sit on the sideline and preserve capital? Well, let's put it this way. I have, of course, money in Asia. As I said, the bulk of my portfolio is in Asian securities, whereby my asset allocation, and everybody who reads my newsletter knows that, it's basically 25% real estate, 25% equities, 25% bonds and cash, and 25% precious metals. So this is the basic allocation. Now, it can be that in a year, the allocation to equities would move up more and to bonds less or to precious metals more and so forth, depending on the asset price movements themselves. And then if I find an asset class to be particularly depressed, I may increase the position. So I think at the present time, I have about 25% of my portfolio in equities. But because I own real estate through the ownership of real estate, but I also own it through REITs, REITs, my allocation to equities through the REITs is, of course, larger. And in bonds, I own a lot of corporate bonds or emerging market bonds. So they move more like equities than bonds. When the equity market is strong, junk bonds rally. When the equity markets are weak, junk bond tumble. So I have a fair exposure to assets in my portfolio. 
but I also have cash. And as I said, I have bonds. So with the cash, are you just sitting on US dollars, just waiting on the sidelines? Or are you holding other foreign currencies? Because cash seems one of the worst places to be right now with inflation as high it is as it is. Well, in 2022, if you held cash US dollar, you were okay. I agree with you that inflation adjusted, you lost money. But how much money did you lose in meme stocks, in cryptocurrencies, in all kinds of scams, and in equities, in farm stocks? So I think we have to realize there's a possibility that all assets will go down for the next five, 10 years, okay? Then in a scenario where everything goes down, uh, you will be king if you only lose 10% while all your neighbors in the street lose 50% or 80%. It's not that I think that cash is attractive. I just think that at this present juncture, it may not be as unattractive as it may seem relative to other assets. Well, I'm sitting on some cash dry powder for the sidelines, but I'm now starting to deploy it. And this circles back to my questions about the Hong Kong companies, because when I'm looking at these price to earnings ratio, they look so attractive right now, but I can't tell them, am I very, very smart and buying great companies at great prices? Or am I way early to the party and we're going to get a lot of these companies are going to get shaken out over the next couple of years and all of them will go to zero? I don't think they'll go to zero, but I mean, I am a large holder of Hong Kong shares and also Chinese shares that are listed in Hong Kong. And I also have Chinese exposure and among other Asian markets, the other markets in Asia, we have a large investment are Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, and Vietnam. Now, in Thailand, one of the reasons I invest, and this may be interesting for your expatriate community, the reason I have large investments in Thailand is not that I'm particularly bullish about the Thai economy. I think the market here is reasonably priced. I'm not saying it's very cheap. I'm not saying it's very expensive, but it's reasonably priced. And the reason I have these investments in, in Thailand is that I think we may move into a world where you and I, we cannot transfer money from A to B. So let's say I transfer every money for my household needs and for my wife and so forth and so on to Hong Kong from overseas, but maybe one day this will not be possible. So I want to have a portfolio where I live. I also have physical gold where I live. I want to make this clear. If you are living somewhere and your gold is in New York or Canada or far away, you may not be able to get hold of it in case of a crisis. So are you speaking specifically about brokerage accounts, having brokerage accounts set up in different countries, opposed to just using something like IBRK and having one account that holds everything? Yes. No, you can have brokerage accounts in different countries and also bank accounts. I have a bank account in Thailand, or I think even two, but I have brokerage accounts here. 
in Thailand. I've also brokerage accounts elsewhere, but specifically here in Thailand, because I live here and I want to have sufficient funds if whatever happens. Well, we're a big proponent on the show for the precious metals and certainly holding with you and holding an offshore vault and definitely from the bank account as well. I guess sometimes we get a little bit complacent with some of the online brokerage accounts right now that really give you access to all of the markets and the world at once. But what I hear you're saying is actually it's probably best to diversify out of those as well and not have your entire stock portfolio just through one broker. Well, the thing with these online brokerage accounts and this is the thing about the internet. Someone can switch it off. They've done it in India, in Kashmir. They can do it in another country. They can block your bank account as our wonderful, intelligent, with great foresight, Prime Minister Trudeau did. You understand? I'm Canadian citizen. I trust me. I understand. Well, someone who is democratically elected and has taken the measures he took during the trucking strike. And now he goes and tells the Chinese that he supports the demonstrators. What kind of a hypocritical, complete nonsense he gives from himself. But this is democracies. Democracies have the worst people at the top, the very worst. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Power hungry, little, nothing people. Yes. On that point, we are very much on the same page. My listeners know I'm very outspoken about these types of things. And I'm not the biggest fan of democracy by any means. I mean, I used to live in Abu Dhabi and Dubai for eight years and people would say, I thought you're a libertarian and you thought you you want freedom and things like that. And you're look, living under a monarchy. I'm like, well, I felt more safe over there than I did in a lot of the democracies that I've ever lived in. Yes, and to be fair, of course, nothing is perfect. But I went to Dubai the first time in like 1975. There was one tall building in Dubai. It still exists. It's called the International Building. When you come in from Abu Dhabi into Dubai on the main road, which is now a big highway, the road will come to a fork. In front of the fork is this small building, the International Building. That was the biggest building at the time in Dubai. And Sheikh Mahtoum, he's put the place on the map and he's built out of a desert, a viable city that is thriving. I mean, it's an unbelievable achievement. And you can say whatever you want against the Abu Dhabi royal family, but the Sheikhs are reasonable. And people, the foreigners are in a harmonious relationship with the population. Yep. I never felt so safe in my life. I've lived in Singapore. I've lived all over the world. And my time in the UAE was a very special one. I've you can arrive at the airport. You can deposit your suitcase and walk to change money. And when you come back, the suitcase is still there. Try to do that in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in New York. Yep, absolutely. Now we have an interesting example. The whole world is pitching about Qatar. First of all, is a lie that so many people died during the construction of the facilities. 
there were some accidents, but not in the dimensions that is published all over the world. Number two, the people that now criticize Qatar the most are the ones that came to Qatar six months ago on their knees to beg them to supply them with natural gas. I mean, you have to see this. It's unbelievable. Well, I think it's also a little bit comical. Maybe comical is not a very nice word, but I mean, what did you expect when you went into this country? You guys are surprised that they were against gay pride parades going on? Like, did you guys never, like Wikipedia the country or their track record or their history or anything like that? It's very bizarre. It's biased. The media is very biased. The evil people are Russia, Qatar, (laughs) Saudi Arabia also now to some extent. They have to be polite to the Saudis and China. But this Qatar business surprises me because Qatar has, I mean, hasn't done a lot of harm to anyone internationally. They've done some, they were involved in some trouble in the Middle East and so forth. But internationally, they haven't done as much harm as the US has done to other countries. They haven't carpet bombed three countries, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. We have to see this. But anyway, coming back to the investment world, I think if you have a portfolio of securities, I would have some exposure to Hong Kong for sure. I wouldn't put all my money into Hong Kong because I wouldn't put all my money into the same thing anyway. Sure, sure. But I understand some people have put all their money into one company like Microsoft and they became successful or Steve Jobs into Apple. But I'm not a businessman in the sense of Bill Gates or a manager. I'm a portfolio manager and my life is in securities and I invest, I diversify. And I started recently to invest. Well, I always had some investments in Latin America, but I started again to buy some Latin American stocks because I think Brazil and Argentina are inexpensive markets. Well, I've been investing in Brazil and Argentina a little bit over the last couple of years. My listeners know my wife and I went to Brazil almost two years ago now, and we gave birth to our son down there. So our son is a Brazilian citizen, and we have a home down there, and we're very much fans of Brazilian culture and Brazilian people and the language and everything like this. And I own a decent-sized position in Petrobras and been watching that with great interest over the last couple of years, what's happening. And as we are seeing the energy crisis in Europe, trying to be out of anything energy in that country and looking at other areas that are a lot safer. Now, I do have to say that the change in government with Lula being elected is a little bit worrying, but I'm not sure how much that's going to dampen the world's needs or their willingness to get oil from other places. Yeah, yeah, I understand. This is a, look, if you look around the world, there's a problem everywhere. Exactly. So we have to look at the problems and and recognize where is a market as cheap and discounts the problems. Uh, I think Brazil may still go down a bit, but I think we're kind of a closer to a low than to a major high. But I want to also make one point very clear. 
to your listeners and viewers. I started to work in 1970. The market in the US for equities had peaked out the first time in 64, and then in 66, and then in 68, and then in 1973. But each of these peaks occurred in real terms, inflation adjusted at the lower and lower level because inflation was accelerating. So the result was that when the market finally bottomed out in 1982, August, at 883 on the Dow Jones, it was lower than it had been in 66 when the first time the Dow hit the thousand. It wasn't that much lower, but it was lower. But inflation adjusted when you measured it by the consumer price index, it was down 70%, okay? So what you can have in an environment of investments is that in nominal terms, you make money, but in real terms, you lose money. Very common in Latin America. In local terms, the markets go up, but the currency collapses and so you lose in real terms. I believe that the period 1981 for bonds and 1982 for stocks in the US and in the world were major lows. We made somewhere a high in the world, depending on which country. In Japan, it was 89 already, but in other countries, it was 97, and other countries, 2007, and some went up until 2021. And now we are in a period of say, asset deflation, where things will go down. And you have to think, when the bull market was raging, if all your friends were up 20% in a year, and you were only up 10% in your portfolio, you became relatively poorer. You were up, but since everybody's up 20%, you relative to the others, you lost out. In the new environment, I think that if you only lose 20% of your money and others, all the others lose 50 or 100% if they were in FTX and other crazy schemes, then you become with your 20% loss relatively richer than others. I think this is the thinking that many people should undertake. How will I lose the least? They shouldn't always think, how will I make the most money? The other equation is, how can I lose the least in an environment where things are bad? The economy in the world is not as good as it was in 2018. I know that for a fact. It's visible. So with what you've just said, why are you still in? bonds and equities and things like that and not allocating a higher percentage to something like gold or silver, which has probably more likelihood of retaining value? Look, my allocation to precious metals at 25% is a very high allocation. Not many people have 25% of their money in gold and silver and platinum. Most people have 5%. Go to look at institutional portfolios in the US. The allocation to gold, silver, platinum is maybe one or 2%. That's it. 
if they allocated just 5%, the price of gold would be much higher, believe me. So at 25%, I explained to you now why I'm not heavier into gold, even though I think it's my preferred asset. Actually, my preferred asset for the next 12 months is platinum and silver, not gold. But let me explain you why I'm not heavier. I think there is a serious risk that the governments will impose some sort of wealth taxation. And we have to really think hard about this. If a government was able to enslave people and tell them, you have to close down your shop because of a scam pandemic. It's a complete scam, this pandemic. Actually, a lot of politicians should be in jail for having imposed these policies, including your friend Trudeau. Yeah, I, I'm going more with tarred and feathered or quartered, but I, I would settle for jail for sure. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with you. We can find an appropriate first jail and then find an appropriate method of torture. Yes. <laughs> And we know who the experts are in torture. (laughs) But what I want to say is, if that was possible, it is possible that the governments one day will take gold away. Will they do it? You know, they can, under an emergency decree, they can do anything. And if people let them push aside by the government and let them have their shops closed. I know lots of people, they lost their existence, they lost their shops, they lost their restaurants, they lost their coffee shops, and the government officials are still there. So I'm cautious about gold. That's why I also diversify the place where I hold gold, you know, the custody. As I said, I also have some gold here in Thailand. Not that I recommend to have gold in Thailand, but because I live here, I want to have gold here. Absolutely. That makes sense. Well, I am very much a proponent for physical metals, and I'm just not sure in other people's portfolios where they have this 1% or 5% or some people are even advertising 10%. I absolutely think that 25% is a very reasonable amount. And finally, we've crossed 1800 again. I think we're at 18.2 or 18.3 or something like that as of today's recording. But I've been watching the precious metals market over the last year and watching it, what has happened with the massive amounts of cash that have entered the marketplace. I would have expected a little bit more of gold. Well, as I explained to you, people are disappointed about the performance of precious metals. But What I tried to say before is if everything goes down and you have gold and it goes down in US dollars by say, what is it down this year now? 5% or 4%. And most meme stocks and the generation Z geniuses stocks they bought are down 80, 90%. And some of the cryptos are down to zero, then down 4% is a fantastic performance. You understand? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that in the environment I believe we're in, I believe 
the US dollar has topped out. Now, some people will say, say, no, it will go up again, and the US is the cleanest shirt among the dirty shirts and so forth. I'm not sure about that. But if you ask me which currency do you like, I like gold as a currency the best, because I am sure the quantity of, uh, of gold and silver and platinum in the world cannot, under any circumstances, be increased by as much as the quantity of paper money. The number two governments live from inflation and they benefit from inflation. They solidify their position from inflation. Uh, all evil people in the world have created inflation. But you asked me about Hong Kong before and about markets. You see, a year ago, I gave you the two markets, the most popular market and the most unpopular market of a year ago. Because I wrote about this. The most popular market was Vietnam because it had gone up a lot and because everybody said, oh, all the sourcing, the manufacturers will move to Vietnam away from China. Vietnam has done economically okay, but the stock market is down 41% in dollar terms, I suppose, depreciation of the Vietnamese one, Dong, and the stock market. And which market was the most unpopular? And I wrote about it several times, and some readers sent me, Mark, you don't understand. I wrote Turkey, the currency had been down like 80%. Erdogan was unpopular and stocks were cheap. What happened, the Turkish fund listed in New York, in other words, it's in US dollar, is up 83%. Which market has made 83%? I also wrote at the time about Cyprus and the Bank of Cyprus. It's also up more than 50%. Occasionally, when you have a very weak currency, markets become very depressed, like after the Asian crisis, the Asian markets were dirt cheap because of the currency collapse. I mean, in Indonesia, companies, they were worse before the crash of the Asian crisis, were three billion. After the crisis, they were less than a hundred million, one times earnings. So I look at these things, but I feel the dollar has topped out and that it may weaken a lot but especially weaken against precious metals. I mean, there's nothing good about the Euro, but I also wrote about this just recently. You see, in Europe, they have a Minister for Domestic Affairs, and recently he gave a presentation and said, basically, the biggest enemy of Europe is neither China nor Russia, but it's the US because through the policies that they impose through NATO on Germany and other countries and the sanctions and everything, they have increased the cost of living in Europe and the cost of production. Europe does, used to have current account surpluses, no more. So there are politicians like Ron DeSantis of Florida. He recently said the VEF, the World Economic Forum that essentially is involved in all kinds of schemes, you know, to control the world, has no place in Florida and we will never allow 
the VEF to have influence in Florida. And some leaders around the world are waking up that the US policies are not always altruistic. <laughs> they are self-serving. Well, we've certainly seen that with the Nord Stream pipeline, Nord Stream 2. I mean, that's some pretty suspicious things that have happened over there. Well, it's not suspicious for sure. It's British-American joint operation that brought these pipelines, period. That we can assume the way was not caused by a man living in a cave somewhere in the north of Pakistan or Afghanistan. Lots of people were involved. Absolutely. Well, there's a couple of threads that we're going through right now. And one of them that I want to wrap up, and then, and then I do have a couple of questions be- before we finish today. With the precious metals, do you think that there is any chance where China and Russia will start trading oil or natural gas or resources back and forth with precious metals? Because I'm sure they don't trust each other's paper money anymore. Well, you know, trust each other's paper money. I think there is a movement in uh, among SCO members, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. These countries include Russia, China, Kazakhstan, I think Pakistan, Iran. There's a new member is Iran and Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. They have a trading block and trading agreements. And for sure, after the events that surrounded the seizure of reserves from Afghanistan, I think is a disgrace. Afghanistan is a country where they have starvation. There's really bad, bad economic situation. They had some foreign exchange reserves and the US just takes them. It's the same happening in Venezuela right now, by the way, as well. They've kept back Venezuela funds. They've just released it as long as they spend the money to open up the oil fields for, I can't remember if it was Shell or Chevron or something like this. For American interest, for Chevron, yes. But this is, you know, the is the law of the strongest. In old Western movies, is always the law of the sheriff or the law of the big man in a small town who is corrupt and owns everything. Anyway, but it's very bad when you do these things against impoverished people. And in the case of Russia, they've also had the assets seized and frozen. Now, every country in the world has to scratch his head and say, well, I am crazy to have all my money in US dollars in at the Federal Reserve in the United States. I'm going to diversify. I think this the outcome of this conflict against Russia, and it's not about Ukraine, it's a conflict US-Russia. We may talk about this for ages, but the result will be that the world will consist of a population that is 80% non-US aligned. What is US aligned will be NATO in Europe, the UK, Canada, Australia. And then you have other blocks and countries like India. India, in terms of size, has just overtaken Britain. It's now the fifth largest economy in the world. Soon it will be the third largest or so. Of course, they have 1.3 billion people. 
young population, people who work, they're willing to work. So we live in a new world and the British still haven't realized that they're a completely insignificant country within the world. I mean, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, advised Britain strongly to become neutral. He said, we can do for the world much more as a neutral country than as empire that no longer exists, than the poodle of the United States. So anyway, this is my view. I would diversify outside the Anglo-Saxon bloc. If you have assets in Canada, the UK, the US, Australia, it's basically one and the same. You know, they sanction you in one country, the others will do the same. So I would have some assets in Asia and I would have some assets in Latin America. But going back to the original question, do you think that these other countries like Russia, China, maybe some of the BRICS countries will start participating in trade with one another in precious metals or in another type of commodity? Maybe not directly in precious metals, but they may have a, a currency that is backed by precious metals. It's possible. It's possible. That's what I'm thinking as but well. There is much more trade occurring today outside the US dollar than in, than before. The Chinese are settling their oil purchases with Saudi, not in dollars anymore. And India buys oil from Russia and they don't settle in US dollars. So a lot of things are happening now, but I think strategically the US made a mistake that they accelerated this trend. Nothing the government has ever done is good. Well said. The private market could have found better solutions. Absolutely. My last piece, just to kind of wrap up our currency conversation, was if you are holding cash right now and you believe that US dollars have peaked, what other type of fiat would someone want to look at right now for staying on the sidelines? As I said, precious metals. But I think a reasonable currency is the Singapore dollar. Okay. Is one of the better ones. I happen to think that some Latin American currencies are reasonably priced. You know, this year, the Mexican peso is up a bit against the US dollar and the Brazilian real as well. And of course, the Russian ruble. <laughs> that, that is its own conversation, which we probably don't have time for today. But I, I think, you know, I live in Thailand. I can tell you in Thailand, Recently, they had a survey uh, conducted by an organization. It was on Bloomberg. The cheapest cities to live in. Number one cheapest city was Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. I don't agree entirely with this view, but that's, I give you the results of the survey. And then the number two, three, four, five, six were cities in Portugal and Spain. Now, I don't think that Barcelona and Madrid are all that inexpensive, but in Europe, if you go to the countryside, in Germany, Britain, and Spain, Portugal, Italy, Sicily, along the Balkan countries, you know, Macedonia, Croatia, and so forth, you can buy real estate very reasonably. In Italy, they give it to free yeah. For you to live in a village. Yeah, we've done interviews on this. One dollar, one euro homes in Italy, 
we've done entire episodes. Pretty wild. Yes, but you you have to then do something with it. So it's not entirely free. But I'm saying the cost of living in small villages in Europe, in the countryside, is inexpensive. In today's economy of internet and so forth, you can be anywhere as long as the internet works. So I'm mentioning this. But uh, some cities in Asia are also quite inexpensive, you know, uh, in the countryside. Chiang Mai is the second largest city in Thailand. Thailand is a country with, I don't know, 70, a little bit over 70 million people. And it's surprisingly, the infrastructure works reasonably well. And this, as you say, is safe. You felt safe in Dubai. I feel reasonably safe here. Not as safe as in Dubai and uh, Abu Dhabi, but reasonably safe. But anyway, I estimate the cost of living here to be about 70% lower than in a European or American city. Not for everything. You know, the cars are more expensive here than, say, in America, especially if you buy luxury cars, like Singapore is saying, a luxury car, crazy. But normal cost of living is here reasonable. Absolutely. I mean, that's also how I feel about a lot of the places in Latin America right now. I think that there's amazing opportunities to have a fantastic life down in one of these countries where you can really up your standard of living and lower your cost of living and get out of the big cities in Europe, in Canada, in the United States. Like, What are people still doing there? There's a lot more opportunity in places like Southeast Asia that you said, or here in Panama where I am, or where we were talking about in Brazil and Argentina and places like this. Yes, for sure. So... I'd say Asian currencies are reasonably priced against the U.S. dollar. Uh, they're not uh, terribly depressed, but say I feel re- I have a portfolio in Thailand of stocks. Okay, the stock market is down a bit this year, but not hugely in local currency, maybe four percent, and the currency has been down, maybe five percent. But my portfolio is about flat because I have very high dividend yields and I had some maybe fortunate investments, but I'm not measuring myself as someone who outperforms the index and so forth. I'm just interested in value stocks. Amazing. Last thought on currencies. Any opinion on the Swiss franc? As a Swiss citizen, I'm kind of curious what you believe right now. Well, I'm sad to say that we also have a shift in Switzerland to the left. and. We're not right-wing extremes, but we are, if you look at the middle of the political spectrum, my side is more on the right, but I don't belong to any party. But we launched an initiative for neutrality, but a lot of people don't want neutrality because if you strictly enforce neutrality, there's no way for you to join NATO, no way for you to join EU. I think it's desirable not to join these organizations, to be neutral. But a lot of other people, the politicians, they like these organizations because there's lots of money in it. Someone sent me a picture of the foreign minister of Ukraine in his Mercedes car. Then it was found out that it's a stolen car from a year ago in Germany. Nice. So a politician in a stolen car. I wrote, every politician has stolen his car. (laughs) Absolutely. 
yeah, through taxation. But I'd say there are currencies, you know, that will surprise on the upside against the US dollar. But I personally, for someone who has cash and only 5% in precious metals, I would tell him you're underweight precious metals. Perfect. Well, we'll end it there, Mark. Amazing conversation. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for your time. If my listeners, if my audience want to find out more about your writing and more about your work, where can we send them? Well, they can go to my website, gloomboomdoom.com, all in one word, gloomboomdoom. First, the gloom, the boom, doom. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.